Welcome to Biota Live. I'm Tom Barbelay, and this is a continuation of the Biota Podcast. For more information on the Biota Podcast, go to biota.org slash podcast. We have our first caller on the line. Hello, first caller. Zan Gill, how are you? Hello, Zan. Good to talk to you this evening. We've got a lot to discuss, but... uh, as you may remember from your last time on Biota Live, we have a, a few news and notes first, and then we'll get into this evening's discussion. For folks who also would like to participate this evening, the call-in number is 646-200-0640. And we have an active chat room for folks who don't want to call a U.S. number or who would just like to listen in and participate with questions as they come to them. Our next episode, Friday, February 6th at 8 p.m. Pacific, Mark Bedeau will be on. Now, folks may recall that Mark Bedeau appeared on a Biota interview possibly about two years ago. And Mark has a number of interesting events. Obviously, he is the CTO, I believe, of Proto-Life. He has a book out called Proto-Cell, together with a wide variety of, of founding folk associated with the field of artificial life. He is the chair of the International Society of Artificial Life and also the chief editor of MIT Press's Artificial Life Journal, and he has a number of other things that he's working on currently as well. So Mark is one of these people who just has a lot of stuff on, and we have a lot of, of questions to ask him, particularly with regards to the new book. Sam, have you read Protocell? I have not yet read Protocell, and I should. I know David Deemer, Origin of Life Theorist, has an article in it as well. It sounds like a, a fascinating book, and one of the questions that I want to put to Mark is, how uh, wet artificial life merges into things like soft artificial life. And speaking of hard artificial life, I had some communication this week with Steve Grant. And Steve has now formally launched his new company. If you want more information on his new company, check out the Greysum blog, G-R-E-Y-T-H-U-M-B dot org slash blog for Steve Grant's new robotics company with regards to hard artificial life. But certainly linking all the uh, all the different hardness, softness, wetness of artificial life together, Mark Bedeau is the man to talk to. So it's going to be an interesting discussion in two Fridays' time, February 6th at 8 p.m. Pacific. So we are coming towards Darwin's birthday, and folks may remember from the last boat live that Bruce Damer said he was going to be in London for the Darwin birthday celebrations. But if you would like to participate as well, there is a website, I dash am dash darwin dot org where we collect together youtube clips of folk talking about how darwin has impacted their work and their life and sam have you have you heard about the i am darwin project i have and i'm going to send you something terrific i'm looking forward to it i have a a 10 minute um video clip that is going to go up uh, pretty soon uh, uh, on my ideas uh, from the book what Daedalus told Darwin so that had to get done first terrific well i think you have three folks listening in have three remaining weeks to participate with regards to that so time is running out in terms of getting the video clips in so check out the site i-am-darwin.org to see some of the Uh, video clips that have already been submitted, a number of folk in the artificial life community and also the biota community have submitted clips, and a number of folk who don't have any associations with either of the above have also submitted I Am Darwin videos. So, Zan, as you're a regular at Graytham Silicon Valley, are you going to be attending Tuesday's meeting? I hope to, yes. 
So you attended, obviously, the, the Al Lundell, now the, the regular segment where Al Lundell discusses artificial life news. But uh, Steve is, is your friend. Can you give some introduction to his talk and what, you know, what his work has been about relating to artificial life? Oh, is Steve on? Great. Yes, he's talking about uh, cooperation in biology, economics, and artificial intelligence. I'm, I'm, if you had some connection with Steve's work in the past. Yes, I have. And um, Steve has done a lot of interesting work on the uh, Baldwin effect. And, um, of course, Steve is working in um, the area of AI and self-aware systems and learning systems. And so the Baldwin effect, which A-Life theorists Hinton and Nolan uh, first did the simulation, brought that to A-Life, um, is of serious interest to him and his work. So I assume he'll be talking about that. Yes, I think the combination of biology and economics probably will touch on some of the stuff we discuss this evening as well. So I'm interested in seeing Al's um, continuing videos for, for Steve's talk. And uh, Biota's own Scott Schaefer will be presenting Bubble Pond, which I think is a, the third of his artificial life projects that he has presented at Graytham Silicon Valley. So something else that I wanted to mention to folk, I've had a lot of correspondence uh, in the new year from folks who are based in Silicon Valley, who are fans of Biota Live, who have been fans of the previous Graytham talks. But unfortunately, due to the nature of their startups and these kind of time constraints, they're unable to attend the evening Graythams. So what occurred to me, because I received about three of these correspondences in, in relative succession, was that it may be more productive if there were three or four lunch locations over the Bay Area that would bring folk together who would be in the Graytham community if they could attend the evening uh, talks, but unfortunately can't attend the evening talks but still want to be part of the artificial life discussion. And I think this is an interesting blueprint for a number of other Graythams the world over, possibly even Boston and London and uh, Benelux, to actually have folks in areas where you know, maybe constraints or just they can't attend every meeting and they know that there are other artificial life interested folk uh, available. So in this week's show notes, I'm going to put a link through to the Facebook group associated with the Graytham Silicon Valley lunches. But it doesn't, uh, you know, if you're in a different area and you'd like to get together with other artificial life enthusiasts, email me, tom at noble8.com. There are a number of hobbyists and muses and academics out there that would like to get together. Dan, I know you signed up for the, the Graytham Silicon Valley lunches. What would you like to see come out of it? Well, I think it's a great idea to um, to offer an alternative uh, time slot. And are you thinking that those lunches would be um, presentations followed by discussion or just discussion periods? I think it's relatively free form. I mean, my sense from the correspondence that I've received is that for every one person that actually attends a Graytham meeting, there are two others that would love to attend but have constraints which stop them from attending the meeting specifically. And I think what, um, through my correspondence, I put Scott Schaefer in contact um, with a couple of these folk who'd been corresponding with me just to indicate that there were other people in the Bay Area that were interested in doing stuff or had already done stuff that was very similar to what Scott was doing currently. And I think the difficulty with regards to particularly the evening meeting and also the geographic size of the Bay Area is that there are you know, probably a lot more people out there than you would get to see through the specific meeting locations and meeting times. So 
But my sense is, as what is currently going on with Grace and Silicon Valley in terms of a meeting of friends in some regard, and what Al Landell is doing in terms of talking about news articles, I think this would just, you know, put faces to names, but also give a sense that, you know, there were, say, a dozen people that were doing work similar to Scott Schaefer, and maybe half a dozen that are doing work um, similar to you know, Scott Davis and maybe some of the NASA folk could attend that specific lunch. And I think in correspondence, Berkeley was one of the areas where there were a number of people involved with startups, and that was one of the lunch locations. And probably somewhere between, you know, San Jose and Santa Cruz was another location. And obviously somewhere in, in the belt leading towards San Francisco would be another location. But there just seemed to be clumps of people who are clearly fans of, uh, of what we're doing with Biota and also what's going on with Graysum and have a really um, interesting background history. I mean, a lot of these startups are doing things which can slowly bend into artificial life if given the right prodding. So I think there are a number of layers here. On one layer, there is a kind of hobbyist meeting of minds, a kind of, uh, you know, enthusiast discussion. On another level, there is networking and, you know, proactive um, kind of, you know, potential future projects. On another level, there is potential uh, business collaboration, and this is certainly the feedback that I got from um, Brian Pelton in, in, in the Boston area with regards to what they started doing with Graysum. So I think there's a lot of potential there. Um, I don't want the, the format of the evening meeting to break down this potential. And certainly there was kind of critical mass of correspondence leading up to this idea. Uh, but certainly the community has spoken with regards to the numbers that have gotten together. And I think Sharon Minsook may be the person who will organise the um, Graysum Berkeley lunch, the first Graysum Berkeley lunch, which will go on, I'm not sure, probably in the next month or so. So for folks who are listening uh, to this that are either in the Bay Area or would like to do a similar lunch series wherever they are, get in contact with me, Tom at Noble8.com. Check out the show notes, uh, and I will include a link through to the Graysum Silicon Valley lunches page on Facebook. So another Graysum, Graysum Second Life. Folks will remember Dick Gordon has been on a number of previous Biota Lives and I actually crashed his Second Life course last Sunday. I had a relatively bad prior experience with Second Life that had turned me off the whole interface, but I thought this is ridiculous. Dick had sent out a, a bulk email, and I thought I'd attend it. And it's an amazing area. I mean, I was really... Uh, the problems that I'd previously experienced with Second Life had completely disappeared, and at the conclusion of Dick's seminar, a group of avatars gathered around me, and we had an extended discussion associated with artificial life. In fact, one of the participants in that discussion is going to appear in a Biota Live when I get back from Australia uh, at the end of March. So I thoroughly recommend folks uh, who are interested in meeting like-minded folk in a virtual space to discuss a, a wide variety of issues that they check out the great on Second Life space, perhaps even organise um, you know, dates and times that you're going to be meeting there and try to congregate with other like-minded folk. I found it actually quite overwhelming just in terms of the numbers, the quality of the discussion, and also the fact that it was a community that had a very high-level understanding of, uh, of what was going on with regards to uh, you know, the, the Artificial Life Project. So check it out on the Biota page, biota.org slash podcast. There's a link through to the specific Second Life location. And, uh, yeah, look forward to talking to other like-minded folk in that environment. Speaking of Dick Gordon, Divine Action and Natural Selection, the book arrived in my hand 
over the week, and it was amazing. It was quite overwhelming. I've described reading the PDF previously, but when you hold um, about 1,100-page text in your hand, of which you've contributed maybe 20 pages, and Bruce was in there with his contributions as well, very, very overwhelming. I had hoped that I would receive uh, additional promo copies of Divine Action Natural Selection to offer in the podcast um, for folks who would like to participate. I was thinking of having some kind of contest or prizes associated with copies of Divine Action Natural Selection. But it is an amazing surveying. I, I don't want to talk too much about my own copy, but uh, suffice to say, uh, as soon as it arrived, it left my hands and it was returned to me after it had gone through half a dozen other hands in a rather more dog-eared state. It is a kind of text which really can apply to a wide variety of folk. It's not just about artificial life. It's not just about science or religion, really. There are a wide variety of articles that have a, you know, an impact on, on a wide variety of areas. And in terms of a surveying, um, I know Dick has been known with previous works that he's done, his, his uh, morphogenesis work in the past in particular, in terms of producing these kind of tomes, but very, very overwhelming. It will be available on Amazon pretty shortly, and the link is already up on the Biota podcast page. So, Dan, probably one for you to check out as well with regards to your kind of shared collective interest in all this kind of stuff. Great. Now, Sam, I'm not sure if you had the opportunity to um, listen to the Biota Live just following your appearance, but Ed, who was on your show, called in and talked a little bit about his reflections, having uh, listened to you know, the discussion that you uh, presented with Travis and Bruce and Ed and myself. And I think what was interesting out of that was that he had a particular interest in the ecology and the way in which artificial life can impact in these kind of areas. And this was certainly my own feeling as well. I remember when you did the Graytham talk that you put a slide up that had a kind of triangle that had artificial life and various ecological points in it, but you weren't able to actually get to it um, through that Graytham talk. In terms of just a, a background, can you talk a little bit about you know, what was in that triangle and how you feel artificial life fits together with, with the ecological movement? My interest, I should start by saying, is is really in the the problem-solving process. And uh, what fascinates me about artificial life is that it is so beautifully um, models the way we need to combine analysis and synthesis to solve hard problems like the environmental problem. And so I think that it has a unique potential to complement traditional scientific approaches, which tend to be more observational and analytical by offering a speculative vehicle and um, a way, well, I guess there would be three levels. The first would be to simulate, to try to build a likeness that can be, you know, assessed and compared to the real world. Um, but then at the next level to speculate and to um, allow the builder to play out a set of hypotheses where the outcomes are unpredicted. And finally, the, the most ambitious level is to build an interactive environment where, um, you know, the model not only evolves, but um, the, the players interacting. Now I'm saying the human, in other words, it's not just a model that you let go and see what happens, but a model that you continue to interact with, such as a game, right? That, that is Certainly, but I mean, I think... 
I, I think as, a, as an active practitioner of artificial life, what interests me is an additional, I mean, you, you talk about synthesis analysis and what you've talked about in those three examples is a movement to more um, uh, analytic synthesis, for want of a better term. But what interests me about contemporary artificial life and, uh, you know, where, where we appear to be going as a movement is that actually a lot more analysis in an abstract sense, almost a, a metaphysical or, or meta-science sense, seems to come out of contemporary artificial life, certainly as these, these ideas start to, to congregate and percolate. So I think there is a non-trivial component in, in the way that you set this up in terms of the idea that through simulation as you, you, know, as you move into possible, 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 eventually you get to a point where you have some uh, kind of meta-concepts which are fundamentally scientific in some regard, which is actually far greater than the combination of you know, a small series of iterative simulations that test possible worlds, possible interactions, and possible environments. Historically, in terms of the Buckminster Fuller background and these kind of aspects of, of you know, where you've come from, can you talk about his um, interest in, in environmental you know, and ecological movements and how that may have motivated your own understanding in this regard? Well, uh, Buckminster Fuller formulated the idea of world game back in 1961, before there was any internet, and it really it um, um, was in some sense a prediction because there there uh, it really couldn't be done without an internet, and uh, so he, I mean his concept of world game was that we could make the world work for 100% of humanity, um, and that that. Um, through uh, involving um, the players, namely you know, all the, the those who who participated in World Game, um, basically World Game would become a a um, problem solving forum in a way. And at the time that he was doing it, um, it was uh, you know simply butcher butcher paper and magic markers in gymnasia with large numbers of of participants playing, but it basically was a concept for the Internet. So his idea was that um, he thought that, for example, um, you might take specific problems such as hunger, and then you would, you would say, well, how might we eliminate hunger in 10 years? And then teams would, would try to solve that problem by using less resources, costing less, and accomplishing more maybe more than just that at one time. And there would be then several iterative rounds of problem solvers. And then, then the game might shift to look at energy and how might we solve the energy problem or health or education. And, I mean, a key um, uh, vision for World Game was that it was an educational tool, that the process of problem solving itself would help us to um, think more um, globally about our local responsibilities. Are you familiar with uh, Justin Lyons' work in this area and Simudine, his company? I'm not. Okay. So Justin has appeared on previous both lives, and he's currently um, based in Iraq, which is why he's so hard to get on both lives currently. Um, in Iraq, you said? Yes. Yeah, he's, he's, um, he's kind of artificial life's Indiana Jones in some regard. Um, uh -huh. But his, his background is to take a lot of these ideas and write uh, or find artificial life algorithm creators. Um, so Adam Arimenko out of Boston, for example, 
and pose these kind of problems to artificial life algorithms that are sufficiently tailored to solving these kind of problems and then make it into quite a, a lucrative business. And the thing that fascinates me, because when Justin comes on and talks about these things in an abstract sense, as an artificial life uh, developer, my concern with regards to the world game as it applies to artificial life algorithms is the ability to find tangential and um, maybe forces that you wouldn't necessarily associate kind of a priori with regards to a specific problem. Now, artificial life simulations, funnily enough, historically, um, and here I'm thinking even of uh, Tom Ray's Tierra and Carl Sims' Blockies, have been able to find bizarre boundary conditions and manipulate them in, in quite interesting and exciting ways. And I think in terms of, um, for example, let's say ecological, uh, the, the ecological problem as you've described it, they would probably find uh, amazing boundary conditions relatively quickly with the existing algorithms that we have. The interesting point that I always put back to Justin Lyon is that, um, for example, I mean, he used healthcare as a, as a set example. He's also used mineral mining and various other things uh, for these artificial life algorithms. But if you were to give an artificial life algorithm the problem of um, low or no income healthcare in the U.S., which is a, a point that, that Justin put out there, my concern is that unless you model pharmaceutical companies, unless you model the healthcare industry, unless you model Congress and the Senate, unless you model these kind of iterations from the real world, you will not be able to uh, overcome or understand some of the retarding forces which are fundamentally irrational but exist there. And in terms of, if we talk about the butcher paper example that Bucknett to Fuller you know, put out in gymnasiums, what was your sense in terms of the ability for this being done on paper with people to solve these kind of issues? Well, so back to my the original um, chart that you mentioned from my um, my talk last July at SRI, um, because I'd like to bring in the two other points. So uh, the the triangle that you referred to, the top of that was uh, world gaming and really bringing Buckminster Fuller's idea of world game to, to the 21st century using the internet and all the tools that we have now. But the two other points of that triangle were new media and geo-aware technologies, right, and the, the capacity to harness now social networks, Web 2.0, 3.0, hopefully, um, to these problems. And, and the third triangle was the green economy and uh, are now the current focus that we have on uh, socially responsible entrepreneurship and uh, my particular interest in collaborative intelligence. In other words, how you can create a, an effective distributed collaborative process, um, enable decision support for hard problems um, such as um, environmental sustainability problems. Now, World Game is still really, I think, too big for anyone to get their, their minds around. And so, I mean, the challenge that global warming simulators are, are having is, you know, there are all these simulations, but um, as Isaac Held of uh, NOAA has written, that the, the real problem is that um, you can't really, they, they aren't at present effectively stitched together. And, um, I mean, that's the ultimate sustainability challenge and the question of how can um, A-Life perhaps help with um, 
enabling people to work at a regional level on regional scale problems or even parceling the problems into partitioning them into smaller components than that and still being able to stitch them back together in a meaningful way. Are you familiar with Freeman Dyson's critique of computational simulation with regards to environmental modeling in particular? I'm more familiar with Freeman Dyson's work on the origin of life. Uh, Freeman Dyson is a very broad thinker, and he's done a lot of things. He does. I mean, he's, I, if, if you were to characterize on the founding fathers of artificial life, I think his, uh, his artificial chicken and related other um, works come together. But interestingly enough, he, I, I have tracked his views with regards to large-scale environmental simulations because I think it's a, he proposes an interesting critique um, to the, what, exactly what you're saying. I think what interests me is, again, the, the stupid humans as opposed to the simulations in, in these contexts. I think the simulations can go and do uh, wonderful and amazing things. It's, it's just bringing it back to the humans and motivating chains based on that that seems to be the, the current difficulty. And I think Freeman Dyson, um, it's probably too detailed for me to go into in this podcast, but I recommend folks check out Freeman Dyson's Wikipedia link, which has quite an active and constantly updated um, section associated with his critique of uh, large-scale ecological simulations, particularly with regards to global warming, but also just a broader critique. My sense of the world game, as it relates to artificial life, is that rather than having thousands of people together in a gymnasium writing uh, with regards to a specific issue. You have, on one level, what you described, which is thousands of simulators, and these are people and also their simulations, coming together to try and solve a specific issue. I mean, is this what you're describing fundamentally in terms of a gathering together of minds and simulations or moving towards a, a solution to a specific problem? Well, just picking up one thread from uh, that you mentioned earlier, um, I want to suggest that I really see World Game and James Lovelock's Gaia hypothesis as as hand in glove. That that James Lovelock, in formulating the Gaia hypothesis, very clearly stated the problem, and of course he encountered huge resistance when he originally published the Gaia Hypothesis in 1972, and it was a-life theorists who came in and started doing simulations, and of course one of the first very famous ones was Daisy World, and of course and Daisy World vastly oversimplifies uh, the problem in order to make some very clear and very important points, right? Um, uh, and so I see... Uh, world game as the glove that fits the Gaia hypothesis in the sense of suggesting how we as, and, and I really think it's the, I don't see a separation between artificial life and the artificial intelligence folks working on multi-agent systems. I mean, I really think that these two areas need to come together more. Agreed. Uh, because the, the multi-agent systems people are coming up with approaches that that uh, that a life might apply, or an a life is also coming up with approaches that might apply to multi-agent systems, and and so I think the challenge, and actually there are some um, Australians who have written an interesting critique, which I think is very apropos of the problem here. Uh, they're at Monash, and um, they've uh, written on uh, Alan Doran. Do you do you know him? Um, I'm familiar with the with the crew at Monash, so I believe I've probably met him at one conference or another in the late 90s. And in any case, their 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 critique focuses on 
the they've looked at a range of artificial life slash ecosystem simulation experiments and looking at many of the very famous ones, Tierra, Vida, uh, some of those uh, uh, poly worlds. Um, but their main critique is the lack of a capacity for emergence in these systems. And to me, that is the, the primary challenge. And of course, what interests me about artificial life is its potential to to address what is common to evolution, intelligence, and collaborative problem solving, I think, in that all of these are emergent phenomena. Certainly. But that's not easy to simulate. The traditional um, goal-focused uh, model of problem solving, in other words, you know, state your problem, define your problem, state your goal, and reduce the difference between the present state and the goal state, which was the, the basis for early robotics is um, inadequate to solve the, to address the kinds of environmental problems that we face today where there is uh, inevitable unpredictability. And um, artificial life has the potential to, to address some of those problems and to build systems that can cope with uncertainty. Now, I think Louis Rocha at, at Indiana is doing some interesting work in that area. Certainly, certainly. But I think, I mean, emergence, even with regards to the blocky creatures, even with regards to Carl Sims' work, but also in my own understanding of Polyworld, my own interaction with uh, the Polyworld simulation, you get a wide variety of emergent behaviours out of those simulations depending on, you know, what you want to consider emergence coming from. I mean, I think this is a, a problem with regards to definition in this, in this context. But more importantly, I mean, if you talk about emergence from uh, some kind of abstract simulation that is designed to solve problems, I, I would agree that this is something that artificial life needs to move towards. What's, what's your own blueprint in this regard? Because I remember looking at the slide and seeing that there was more to it than just what you've described so far. Well, first of all, I want to stay away from the word blueprint. <laughs> because blueprint suggests that I've got a solution and that it's static. And the, the whole nature of this thing is that it's dynamic and uh, emergent and unpredictable. But um, the important complementary streams of ideas, I think, are the, the folks working on bioeconomics, right, have a, and now that we're in this big Darwin year, um, the, the people thinking about bioeconomics are thinking about a, uh, complementary models to the traditional Darwinist model of evolution as simply random variation and competition for survival of the fittest. And the, the bioeconomics models suggest that there are other components and that the, the very nature of life is its, um, um, its own um, behavioral performance and, and its own decision-making processes, which obviously um, either lead to better survival or less effective survival, and so that that becomes a key component in the evolutionary process. I mean, leading back to what I was saying with regards to the kind of meta ideas, I think this comes through a lot of what you're saying as well, that what is coming out of artificial life now are things, not just simulations, but also 
a broader series of, of analytical tools. Um, they're, I guess, fundamentally described in philosophical tools, things such as what Dick Gordon has done in his book in terms of what I wrote on and in a completely different area, what Bruce wrote on. We weren't talking about our own simulation experiences. We were talking about motivating change and direction and the things that we had learned through our own experiences of artificial life. So certainly with regards to returning to the stupid humans as opposed to the beautiful simulations, I mean, I think what interests me with regards to what we're writing about in Dick's book, but also with regards to ecological concerns, is that there is a, a problem currently, and I wrote in my show notes, you know, fools rush in where Dawkins fears to tread in this regard. But I mean, the, for me anyway, when I started developing Noble Ape, um, you know, ecological simulation, the means of describing as you as you talk about the kind of emergent ecology and how societies were intertwined with their ecological environments and how, you know, the societies that robbed from their environments early would develop in different ways and the harshness of the ecology and these kind of things would change the society versus kind of utopian society. So I think there are, and to some extent I get the impression that Larry Yeager came to it from a similar perspective and also the Framsticks guys and, you know, there seems to be an underlying ecological uh, message that comes through all these artificial life simulations both explicitly and also with regards to the underlying development philosophy and the philosophy that comes out of that. But the more I thought about it and certainly interacting with folks like Dick Gordon and coming, you know, spending time in the US and then going to the UK and back to the US, I think there's a broader issue which is this idea of kind of junk science or the movement of science into you know, something which is commoditized and then distrusted. And I think when we talk about, for example, creationism or when we talk about uh, the ecological doubt movement or when we talk about all these things, it's really to do with a, a pollution of science, which is ultimately a kind of meta-philosophical issue that you seem to be touching on, you know, progressively through what you're saying. I mean, does this ring true with what you're saying? And do you see that the you know, artificial life developers are actually creating a philosophical movement with what they're doing as well? Well, this is interesting because I don't feel that I talk about junk science. That's, that's not one of my themes. But I do talk about the um, tremendous impact of cultural lenses on how we interpret scientific theories, and particularly in my book, What Daedalus Told Darwin, I'm, I speak about the cultural lenses um, imposed on Darwin's theory. And those cultural lenses went back to, well, uh, Adam Smith published Wealth of Nations in 1776, so that was 83 years before Darwin published Origin of Species, and the, the ideas of Adam Smith were very much in the air as capitalism and industrialism were we're growing and survival of the fittest, so started there as a, as a capitalistic idea, so that that was the lens then that was uh, imposed on Darwin's theory. And um, Stephen Jay Gould has reinforced that point in, in saying that Darwin's theory might be viewed, or our interpretation rather of Darwin's theory might be viewed as an extended analogy to wealth of nations, and that in fact Gould argues that Darwinism, that, that Darwin's name was misappropriated to label Darwinism, that it, that it actually misrepresents him. Because Darwin had strong questions about, um, I mean, Darwin's dilemma was the, his dissatisfaction with calling variation simply random, and of course equal dissatisfaction with labeling it intelligent design. And so I think he was 
searching for a deeper um, explanation of evolution. And I think that they, there's wonderful, there's been, been, been wonderful thinking about the idea of how evolution is evolving. I was really happy to see Scientific American's January article with that uh, title. So, you know, I think evolution is evolving into the future as, as a theory. And um, the question is, um, you know, what, what does our interpretation of evolution, um, how does that guide us in, in our next steps to cre- create an environmentally sustainable planet? Talking to, to Dick Gordon with regards to uh, his own struggles with regards to um, creationist movements and how they uh, perturb and, you know, interact with what you've described in terms of Darwin the man versus Darwinism versus Darwin the page in the textbook versus the, you know, the, the man, the myth, the legend, the continuation, the future. I think what interested me talking to, to Dick about it, and we've done it on a number of uh, both lives and also through correspondence and through his book, is that the idea that the relationships that contemporary science may have with the likes of creationists or these kind of groups that want to perturb science in their own particular direction or have completely non-science views that they are trying to scientize currently is also mirrored with regards to the ecological issue. And what you find is that we are surrounded by these perturbations of science in order to describe powerful movements, be they financial movements, be they religious movements. I think, certainly talking to folks like Dick and folks such as yourself and obviously Bruce, that we have some kind of prototype within the artificial life community with regards to testing these kind of hypotheses, which isn't just about simulation. It's actually something that's broader and more philosophical. But I think in my own understanding, it has really come to um, grouping these quantities in, in, in a like sense in terms of the, the methods of analysis and the methods of description that we have through simulation, but also these, these meta-methods. I was interested in your Gratham talk. You did a large surveying of the artificial life community before you came to your perspective. I mean, you talked to folks like... Uh, Mark Badeau, various other you know, formative thinkers in, in the field of artificial life. What new ideas or what changes in your thinking did they provide with regards to the ecological question specifically? Well, going back to the unique potential of, of artificial life to, um, I think, address um, evolution concurrently with um, addressing our, our own problem-solving methods. So, so I think that artificial life is uniquely positioned to make a contribution to the number one challenge of environmental sustainability, which is coming up with effective methods for knowledge integration, for example. Uh, now, there's lots of effort in the autonomous learning agent community trying to figure out how to process and fuse decentralized data and uh, but the artificial life community has, um, I think, a unique contribution to, to make here to um, uh, construct systems that allow us to um, play with ideas about knowledge integration and um, um, collaborative problem solving and, and, again, to focus on decision support and how diverse actors within a system each with their own aims and objectives, can share a problem 
and respond to it in diverse ways. In other words, how you can set up um, systems with diverse players, with diverse utility functions, right, um, but who can um, self-organize around a problem. And so I think that, that A-Life could model some of some sample problems and begin to um, feed into our knowledge of collaborative problem solving in a really unique way. And I don't think we're very sophisticated in that domain yet. And so uh, for me, it's much more fascinating than, you know, A-Life trying to copy an ecosystem and trying to, you know, provide an accurate model that is comparable to an ecosystem is the potential of A-Life to create um, a, a knowledge integration system. It's, it's an interesting meta problem, and I think certainly the, the kind of criticisms, I mean, there's the someone like Freeman Dyson who fundamentally created the field and then was fundamentally distrustful of the field came to it. But I mean, I think in terms of ecological simulation, we encounter the same problems that we encounter with the, you know, simple evolution simulations as means of evangelizing. Because I mean, I think fundamentally, the problem that we have with ecological simulation is that you can present a, a beautiful, emergent, visually pleasing ecological simulation, which still won't motivate the kind of change. Now, I think your idea of the meta level where you in fact are simulating the interrelation the, the components which will lead to change is a different strike at the, the same problem and i think that may yield new and interesting results well there are practical domains that that artificial life researchers are working on that are making very specific uh contributions like artificial uh, a life um analyses of uh, traffic patterns or pedestrian uh traffic patterns Right, that those kinds of analyses um, have require the components that could be extended to um, other kinds of ecological problems, or even a life analyses of um, optimal robotic behavior. You know, recharging battery strategies for for robots. Um, studies like that have energy implications so, th so that the A-Life community can pick very specific problems and those problems then can be generalized to, you know, to other applications, I think. And so I'm not suggesting that A-Life has to look only at the, the, the you know, knowledge integration application. And I mean, certainly when I talk about this with Justin Lyon and he gives specific examples, the criticism I've always had about it is that the economic, the economics of this need to be in, in very tight uh, conditions and up until now there's been a certain degree of economic slack with regards to a lot of these industries and certainly their reception to these kind of uh, artificial life simulation optimizations as you're describing. But I think the current economic situation actually almost facilitates the, the benefit of these kind of simulations. So we may be at a relatively unique time where artificial life simulation can make a, a dramatic and definite impact on the bottom line. As folks are listening to this, I mean, you've spoken to Ed, you've spoken to people that are in very applied areas associated with artificial life simulation. How would you motivate these people into tuning their algorithms specifically for these kind of problems? Tuning their algorithms specifically for these kind of problems... Now, I'm not sure that that's my domain of expertise. I would I would rather speak about particular problems that they might look at. Um, for example, sensor networks and um, uh, how do you make sensor 
networks uh, more um, cooperative and perhaps energy conserving, right? Um, how, how do you make sensor networks adaptable? Practical problem like um, supply chain management. How I, I think the ALIFE community could look at look at a problem like that and explore how to make um, that a, a particular supply chain system more um, economically uh, efficient. And these are all multi-stakeholder environmental problems that that ALIFE is very suited to address. So I guess this leads into the idea of what. What areas do you see the artificial life community currently lacking that needs primary research before these things can even be developed? I mean, you've done a relatively broad surveying, perhaps not specifically with regards to the ecological environmental issues that we've discussed this evening, but what's, what's your sense about what's currently lacking from the artificial life simulator's toolkit in this regard? Well, I, w- I would like to see artificial life tackling more more problems that um, I, I think moving in the world game, coming full circle here to the, the your idea of, of the importance of Bucky Fuller's world game concept and the the relevance of that concept for for the artificial life community. Um, I would love to see that partitioned into something where you could take many many small components and start to create. A life models of components, but with an idea that those components would then fit back together. I think that Bruce Damer is um, working on something analogous with his evil grid idea. In other words, creating a um, uh, an empty construct, if you will, or a framework within which many different subsystems can pl- plug and play. And um, so, what's what's needed is to start to think about frameworks like that um, that can allow many different players to input their pieces and start to hook their pieces to each other. And I mean, an interesting question that has come up only this week with regards to, to Steve Grant specifically, do you see that artificial life developers will need to get political with regards to their simulations as well? Do you think it forces a, a degree of almost political activism in terms of the simulations and the simulators, or do you think that they can remain independent from this and just provide a kind of, you know, analytical result stream as opposed to actually basing anything on that stream? Well, I think that's your area of expertise, Tom, that the whole political action of, of A-Life. But, but I think that the gaming opportunity for artificial life is just huge. And um, Spore hasn't hasn't really um, tackled the great opportunity there. I mean, the great opportunity is not to pre-design the system, but to and and to create um, a a system that really allows the the players, the the human players who enter the system, to play in a very meaningful way. Um, and and so I would love to see. A, a game start to be developed in you know in many 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 different pieces with many different um, creative may, and maybe you Tom are the person to figure out what the the format would be when using Biota Live perhaps as a as a vehicle for that to um, enable many different A Life designers 
to think about how they could contribute to a world game that would be a a game with real and significant implications. In other words, where the the data input and and the the system developed is not just a um, uh, system for amusement, but a system that allows us to to think about these problems. There's been an attempt, you know, the U.S. Geological Survey is very concerned about the earthquakes that were predicted for the next 30 years, uh, both in the Bay Area and in Los Angeles, and um, um, they wanted to develop a game and got the um, um, California Academy of the Arts to work with them on that, but it would have been nice if they'd had some artificial life um, uh, expertise into that process. In terms of future projects, the things that interest me this year are obviously things like the Evo Grid. We did this in discussion last year with regards to the game SDK, which links into that. I have been recently inspired with Second Life, and I think there are interface components with that uh, that could lend themselves to at least a visual framework for this kind of game. But I think really my strengths come from the community rather than me as an individual. I mean, maybe I'm a rebel rouser and a bomb thrower rather than a, a builder in this regard. So, I mean, really, I think people such as yourself need to come on by live on a semi-regular basis to continue to instigate this. You could talk to Bruce specifically about his own motivation with the Evo grid and how uh, the feedback that he's gotten through appearing through Bias Live and attending Grey Thumbs the world over has really maintained his own energy uh, with regards to the Evo grid project. I want to throw out a question for you uh, along these lines. You said you're heading back to Australia, and I think that Australia is in a kind of a unique position because it is smaller as a country. It has unique flora and fauna, it has a, uh, a rather unique community in the artificial life area and actually possibly proportionally more artificial life theorists um, interested in ecosystem modeling. Uh, do you have plans to interview some of those people for Biota Live while you're back there? This is disclosure to the Biota Live community as well. I haven't talked about my trip back to Australia, but I haven't been back to Australia for a decade. I'm going back for two weeks. And my plans initially were to see uh, aging family members and long-term friends who I hadn't seen for a long period of time. Part of that is collecting together an oral history of noble ape because there are people in Australia who I don't have primary communication with that were part of the, the early noble ape community. And I had thought about, um, for example, my hometown of Canberra, Australia, has an artificial life team that has grown up indigenously, quite independent of my own instigations uh, a decade prior. I have thought about going and seeing artificial life developers uh, and interviewing them for Biota, but unfortunately my time constraints are just so tight that it may be difficult for me to even catch up with uh, you know, half a dozen friends as well as family members while I'm back there. I do agree with you in large part that Australia is in a relatively unique position on a number of levels. I don't know, I think you're probably right that per capita there are more artificial life developers in Australia than anywhere else. What I found living in the UK was per capita in the UK there were more artificial life savvy muses, philosophers and enthusiasts in the UK than I found in Australia. I certainly found a lot more like-minded folk in, in the UK and a large part of that is due to Steve Grand. I mean, I think Steve Grand, if you're talking about someone for, I guess, what, 15 to 20 years has been talking about artificial life in the UK press on a perennial basis. I mean, he is someone who has 
prime the UK community for artificial life ideas. And unfortunately, Australia doesn't have the equivalent of Steve Grant. I want to throw out something in the form of a question because I, I uh, don't know the answer to this. But I have, uh, you know that I lived in Australia for half a dozen years. And, and um, uh, during the period I was there, I had entered the international competition out of Japan looking for ideas for information cities of the 21st century. And it, uh, little did I know at the time, I won the award of the mayor of Kawasaki in that competition, which uh, following that competition, as I said, I didn't know at the time, but it became the precursor for uh, a proposal from the Japanese government to the Australian government to build a city of the future in Australia, which started up in 1989 and closed down really a supreme failure in um, uh, the mid-90s. Um, and so nothing ever came of that. But some of the people I worked with while, while I was over in Australia, and they knew that I really championed up a, a championed a bottom-up approach rather than the kind of government-to-government, top-down approach that was going on. There is a revival now in Australia of um, really exploring these ideas. So I'm now working with Australia's Center of Excellence, uh, NICTA, um, which is initiating a smart cities as sustainable ecosystems program, and um, uh, there's no uh, specific connection to artificial life at all. But as I was looking at some of this work in Australia on artificial life, I thought, well, you know, there's, there's some very interesting work going on thinking about uh, ecosystem modeling, and I wonder if some of those people might have ideas that would be relevant to to thinking about, of course, smart cities. That's a huge multi-agent system modeling challenge, and again, a challenge that needs, it's not the world game, but even a city itself needs to be partitioned into smaller problems. And they're looking at traffic issues. Art, artificial life has contributed, contributed quite a lot in the, the traffic domain. So I'm just throwing that out to you to maybe think about, and not necessarily in your two weeks while you're in Australia, but I think with your strong connections to Australia and to the artificial life community in general, um, something might emerge out of that. And certainly I want to acknowledge Gerald de Jong's work here with an architecture firm in the Netherlands as well. I mean, I think artificial life-inspired buildings are part of the ecological city concept. I mean, I think the stuff that Gerald has been able to do even a relatively short period of time to show an architecture firm how you can grow ecological buildings out of his uh, tentacrity structures, fundamentally Buckminster Fuller inspired as well. You know, I think there are a number of components the world over. I do agree with you that there are uh, particular, and I'm, I'm, my sense is that there is an element of tenacity that just comes through developing any kind of technology in Australia, um, which probably lends itself to uh, to, to these kind of folk being, um, you know, particularly good in their particular areas. But I think uh, certainly uh, if there are folks in Australia who would like to uh, collaborate with this kind of effort, I mean, contact me, Tom, at noble8.com or get in contact with uh, Zan directly through her website. And, and in fact, Smart Buildings is part of what they're looking at in this program because obviously they are a component of Smart Cities. Well, Sam, we've gone over time. It's been wonderful talking with you, and I think you've probably provided a number of uh, points for future bio-to-live discussions. Just before um, we concluded, however, your two books, how do folks 
get copies of them? Well, they'll have to wait for a couple of months. But uh, my website is zangill.com, and you'll be able to click through from there to um, purchase a book or go to Amazon, obviously. And for our Fish and Life folk, is there one in particular that you'd recommend over the other? Um, well, the um, If Microbes Begat Mind, uh, from Origins of Life to Emergence of Intelligence, uh, really focuses on the origin of life. And uh, I, this was originally a single book project, which I uh, became too big. Um, uh, unlike Richard Gordon, I decided it shouldn't be one book, that it should be split into two. The other one is the one that focuses on evolution, what Daedalus told Darwin. So it depends on your interest. The, the second one, what Daedalus dar- told Darwin, is the one with more artificial life discussion. Certainly, and I think a lot of a lot of artificial life developers self-reflection as well from our last discussion too. It's been fun to be on with you tonight. It's always fun, Zan. Look, don't be a stranger. Please come back in a shorter period of time than three months, and hopefully we'll have other folk on to talk about this or one of the other uh, issues. Maybe uh, when your books come out, you could come back on to talk a little bit more about them. Terrific. Thank you so much. Not a problem, Zan. So two weeks' time, Friday, 6th of February, 8 p.m. Pacific, Mark Bedeau will be on. I hope Chris Dam will have the chance to call in as well. I'm not sure if he'll be in the U.K., uh, but certainly it will be wonderful having Mark on to talk about some of the issues that we discussed with Larry Yeager, in particular the ideas of teaching artificial life, but also his new book, Proho Cells, and how we can bring wet, soft, and hard artificial life developers together. Thank you all very much for listening in, and thanks again to Zan for a wonderful discussion this evening.